Greetings and welcome to episode 11 of Theology and Sci-Fi, the podcast. I am your host, Derek V. Trout, and I am so thankful that you have decided to join me today. I truly appreciate it. Thank you for your support and sharing this podcast with others. Let's keep it going. I appreciate you, and thanks for listening. Today we are back in the printed word as we look at the book Foundation by Isaac Asimov. Now, Asimov was born in 1920 and died in 1992, and of course is one of the most recognizable names in all of science fiction even to this day. His list of awards are too long to list. Asimov won more than a dozen annual awards for particular works of science fiction and a half dozen lifetime awards. It's said that Asimov wrote more than 500 books. 500 books. I'm not actually. I'm not actually sure about that number. That number is in dispute. Some, I, I believe that number also includes short stories and novellas and things like that. But 500 different stories is what some of the, the numbers out there are. And he wrote more than just science fiction. He wrote mystery books. He wrote fantasy. He even wrote nonfiction books. In fact, one of the nonfiction books he wrote that sits on my bookshelf in my house is Asimov's Guide to the Bible. The volume I have is for the Old Testament. Even though Asimov was an atheist, he still wrote a guide to the Bible. He was an atheist, and we will get to that in a minute. Isaac Asimov's Guide to the Bible is not offering any kind of biblical scholarship. He says so in the introduction, but rather this is a guide to give historical context to events and people and places uh, in, in the Bible. So I was looking at the Old Testament as a history book, not as the inspired word of God. And he also takes some um, liberties and trying to relate different events and maybe say this person might have had a different name and than outside the Bible and inside the Bible. He, he talks about that too. That some things that he does in that book are just speculation. That is in, in the introduction as well. But I thought that was interesting and uh, worth mentioning. Asimov, along with being a prolific writer, was also a professor of biochemistry. That probably has something to do with the hard science fiction he is known for writing. He taught at Boston University, the School of Medicine there, and had a PhD in chemistry from Columbia University and 14 honorary degrees. He was also a longtime member and served as the vice president of Mensa International. He once claimed to have only met two people who were smarter than him. Carl Sagan, who you may be familiar with, and Marvin Minsky, who was a computer scientist, somebody who was instrumental in making artificial intelligence and computer design, those kinds of things. So he said, Asimov claims the only two people who he ever met that were smarter than him were Carl Sagan and Marvin Minsky. Now, as far as religious beliefs, as I stated earlier, Asimov was an atheist. He once said this, I am an athe- I am an atheist, out and out. It took me a long time to say it. I've been an atheist for years and years, but somehow I felt it was intellectually unrespectable to say that one was an atheist. Because it assumed knowledge that one did not have. Somehow it was better to say one was a humanist or an agnostic. I finally decided that I'm a creature of emotion as well as of reason. Emotionally, I am an atheist. I don't have the evidence to prove that God doesn't exist, but I strongly suspect that he doesn't and that I don't want to waste my time. I think that's interesting there, that he says that he viewed it as intellectually unrespectable to say that he's an atheist. Culture today, I think, would say a lot of the opposite, that it is 
intellectually unrespectable to believe in God is is what some people would say now. So the we see a switch here that has happened at one point. It would have been unrespectable to say that because he can't say something about knowledge he doesn't have, and he can't prove that God doesn't exist. So that's not knowledge that he has. So it, it would be used as intellectually unrespectable. Today, though, that has kind of flipped, and people think that you can't be intellectual and also believe in God, but that is not true. And it's just interesting there that that way that we have seen a cultural change from when Asimov was was saying this until today. Another quote by Asimov, If I were not an atheist, I would believe in a God who would choose to save people on the basis of the totality of their lives and not the pattern of their words. I think you would prefer an honest and righteous atheist to a TV preacher whose very word is God, 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 and whose every deed is foul, foul, foul. It's an interesting quote, and I think it's maybe said a bit tongue-in-cheek, and it kind of got me to chuckle a little bit. This idea of an honest and righteous atheist, I'm not sure that that's, I think that's a bit of a a contradiction there, because righteousness does not come from ourselves, but it comes from God, and comes through what God can do within us, uh, that, that the righteousness that Jesus had is the righteousness that we can have. So, so we are not righteous on our own. But I think he's making a really good point here about hypocrisy and Christians. And if there's a TV preacher who's doing one thing, saying one thing this way, this way, you know, preaching one thing and doing another, he sees some hypocrisy there. And I think he's calling that out. And, and, and well should, and many of us, uh, we are all hypocrites in one way or another. It's just the Christians that I know, we're trying to do something about it. We're trying to change that. We don't, we don't like that about ourselves, but we all do that. We all say something and then do something else. It's, that is what sin is, and it's not comfortable. It's not, it doesn't feel great to admit that, but, but people are, are hypocrites, Christians included. It's just that us Christians, for the most part, we're trying to do something about it. But I thought that was an interesting quote there. It's also a misunderstanding about who God is and how salvation works. He says, if I, I would believe in a God who would choose to save people on the basis of the totality of their lives, on the totality of their lives, that would be some kind of works-based righteousness. Would your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, and then you could be saved. But that's not how righteousness works, not with the God of the Bible. How righteousness, how salvation works, uh, for, for God is that we can be saved through what Jesus has done for us, not through what we do ourselves. And there's not some kind of cosmic scale that we try to weigh things out. We can be saved if we accept the gift that Jesus is offering us of salvation. One more quote from Asimov. I tend to ignore religion in my own stories altogether, except when I absolutely have to have it. And whenever I bring in a religious motif, that religion is bound to seem vaguely Christian. Because that is the only religion I know anything about. Even though it is not mine, an unsympathetic reader might think that I am burlesquing Christian, but I am not. Then, too, it is impossible to write science fiction and really ignore religion. First of all, as you will see, Asimov does not ignore religion and foundation, not in this first book, which is the only book that we're looking at today. We're just looking at the first book in the Foundation series. And second, I really like the end of this quote. It is impossible to write science fiction and really ignore religion. Yes, it is. I agree. And hence, we have this podcast that allows us a great vehicle to be able to talk about 
religious and theological themes within science fiction because, as Asimov says, it is impossible to write science fiction and really ignore religion so we can have this podcast today. All right. Enough with uh, the introduction and about Asimov. Let's get started with Foundation. Now, Foundation was first published as a series of short stories in 1942 to 1950, and then it was compiled into three books released in 1951, 1952, and then 1953. So Foundation was released in 1951, Foundation and Empire, the second book containing uh, all of those short stories. Well, not all of them, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, The first book, some of those short stories were made in one book called Foundation. Other ones were made into another book called Foundation and Empire. And the third book in the series is called Second Foundation. And it won the Hugo Award, the one-time Hugo Award, the only time this Hugo Award has been given for the best all-time series in science fiction. And won that in 1966. And again, today we are just looking at the first book in the series, Foundation. And this is going to be a difficult book to look at in the way that we normally do, because this book takes place over decades and introduces a lot of characters. So we're not going to get as detailed as we do in some of the other stories that we've looked at in some of the other books, the other episodes that I've done, but we're going to cover at least enough to let you know what's going on and still be able to get to those theological themes and ideas within this. And of course, I offer the obligatory spoiler alert warning. If you have not read this, if you don't want to know what happens, go read it now because we are about to go through the story and let you know what is happening and there will be some spoiler alerts. And as always, I recommend reading or listening to Foundation before listening to this podcast, but of course that is not required or necessary. All right, then let's go. Foundation is divided, the novel is divided into five parts, each with their own chapters. So there is a part one, chapter one, and a part two, chapter one, and et cetera, et cetera. We're not really going to go through chapter by chapter. We are going to talk about the, the overarching story of each section and the theological themes and ideas we see within that. So we start with part one, which is titled The Psychohistorians. And we're told in the opening paragraphs, which is written as an encyclopedia entry, about a man named Harry Selden, who was a mathematician. And the best existing account of his life was written by Gail Dornick, who met Selden two years before Selden died. And this is the story of their meeting. So something else worth mentioning here from this section is that we are told Harry was born in the 11th, 1988 year so that's 11988 of the galactic era and died in 1269 but the dates are commonly the, the dates that are, are given in the current uh, foundational area era so he here we have a galactic era that they're t- they're keeping some time uh, keeping time by but then they also have the current foundational era. So there's been a a switch in the calendar. There's been something that has happened that has made it go from, we're going to say this was 1269 of the galactic era to this is zero of the foundational era or FE as they call it. So at some point there must have been some kind of reset in time in the way that the dates are kept. There's no more BC and AD. There's no more even GE, Galactic Era. Now it's even gone to the Foundational Era, FE. But some people, even now, today, are trying to change the way in which we keep track of times and years. You have, may, may have heard this before. So what was commonly, for a very long time, known as BC, 
is now sometimes called BCE, BC before Christ, that, that meaning there. But now it is sometimes called BCE, which means before common era. And what it had been known as AD, which is Latin for Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord, is now sometimes referred to as CE or common era. So what was BC before Christ has now come BCE before common era. And what was AD in the year of our Lord is now sometimes referred to as CE or common era. But why? Why is this change? I read that someone said that this was to have quote-unquote religious neutrality in keeping track of time. But it's more than that. It's a move from, for some to move and to remove Jesus from being mentioned, from being recognized every time a date is written. It's not so much about wanting religious neutrality. I, I don't think it's so much about that. I think it's about not wanting to mention Jesus and not wanting to have to mention Jesus as Lord. Because again, when we write A.D. Anno Domini and the year of our Lord, and who is that Lord? That Lord is Jesus. The way we keep track of time recognizes that. And some don't like that. So they've tried to change the way in which these dates are recognized. Going from B.C. to B.C.E., going from A.D. to C.E. And here is what author and artist Eric Samuel Tim wrote about this and and dates in his book, Static Jedi. But a quick note, if you are not familiar with Pastor Eric Samuel Tim and his writing and his artwork and his YouTube videos, you should be. So go type his name into the Google machine and see for yourself. I have some of his artwork in my office at the church I serve at. Fantastic artist, great pastor, somebody who... I'm a big fan of his work, and if you've never seen his, his his artwork, if you've never seen his videos, go watch those, and also go buy the book that he wrote, a book titled Static Jedi, which is pretty cool. We can get behind Jedi here, right? At Theology and Sci-Fi. He wrote a book called Static Jedi, and the t- tagline for that book is The Art of Hearing God Through the Noise. So it's all about being able to to become a Jedi, to block out the static of the noise that surrounds us, that tries to distract us and get us away from God. It's a great book. I'm a huge fan of Eric Samuel Tim. If you haven't heard of him, go type that in the Google machine and, and go go learn some more about him and the cool stuff that he's doing. So again, the book is Static Jedi, and here's what he writes about this time change and, and these timelines. Shortly after Pearl Harbor, projects developing the atomic bomb achieved success, and this altered everything. The world's history could possibly be divided into BAF and AAF on a timeline, before atomic fusion and after atomic fusion. The creation of the atomic weapon is the source of many global conflicts, tensions, and peacekeeping challenges today. The presence of the nuclear bomb continues to shape the future, but in comparison to the change Jesus brought to this earth and to every individual who inhabits the planet, the nuclear threat is a small bullet. The fact of the matter is, history is not labeled BAF and AAF on a timeline. The world's calendar is not quantified to end where the Mayan calendar stopped. If you wouldn't, you wouldn't be reading this. If it was, you wouldn't be reading this book. Instead, it's labeled BC and AD before Christ and after Christ, or AD Amino Domino, uh, Amino Domini in the year of our Lord. What Jesus did, how he lived what he fulfilled, and what he promised to do changed humanity. It started with a handful of disciples, 
taught firsthand by Jesus, and because of that moment, you're holding that book. You're holding the Bible. He changed everything. He continues to change everything. For a long line of of Roman, Julian, and Gregorian calendars, history has hinged on eras divided based upon the conception or birth of Jesus. His life was that huge. Some have since changed the abbreviation that marked our calendars for thousands of years. The newer BCE or CE stand for Before the Common Era and Common Era in place of BC and AD. They omitted Christ from the dating system to comply with political correctness. I understand why some would want to do this, and my job is to love them. The changes of the calendar are right anyway. They still split the timeline based on when Jesus walked upon the earth. They just renamed it. A rose is still a rose. Besides, I kind of like it. In Christ, we are living in a common era where God communed with a specific people group, Israel, before Christ. And after Christ, he began to communicate with all people, Jew and Gentile. So thanks for the change, history, date, calendar, people. Keep it up. You're doing great. You, can, I love that quote by Eric Samuel. It's him in the book that he wrote, and I encourage you again to get that Static Jedi and to read through that and, and to, to go through that. A great book to study with a, a group of other people as well. But you can call it BC or BCE or AD or CE, but it still doesn't change the fact that your calendar was divided to recognize a time before Jesus and then a time during Jesus. Remember, we are still in the year of our Lord because Jesus is still with us. So you can call it any name you want, but the fact remains, something changed when Jesus when Jesus came. A lot of things changed, and our calendars recognize that fact. Jesus changed everything. And in this first section, let's really get into it here. The first section is also called the psychohistorian. So before we get into that too much, actually, let's look at what psychohistory is and to see what Asimov means by this. But there is an actual field of study called psychohistory, and it's quite a controversial field, actually. But here's what psychohistory could be defined as. An amalgam of psychology, history, and related social sciences and the humanities. It examines the why of history, especially the difference between stated intention and actual behavior. Psychobiography, childhood, uh, group dynamics, mechanisms of psychic defense, dreams, and creativity are primary areas of research. Now, this is not what psychohistory in the novel Foundation is about. In the novel, I would define psychohistory as a, a mathematical prophecy, as I think how I would define that. But first, let's get into the story a little bit, and we'll talk about that uh, at an appropriate time when we get there in, in the story. So we start out meeting a man named Gal Dornick, who is traveling from the planet Synax to the planet Trantor, a trip that takes literally seconds. So, so the the ship he's on kind of shakes for a second, and it kind of just this brief movement, and, and he's there. It kind of reminds me of like that feeling in an elevator when you first start to move. It's like you just first start to move, and you're already there, and it's you know hundreds of thousands, millions of miles away, whatever it is. There's just this almost instantaneous ability to travel from, from one planet to another. So he's going to Trantor to meet Harry Selden to help him work on his project, what's known as the Selden Project. So, uh, Dornick arrives and he heads to the hotel and notices that he's not seen the sky since he landed. 
And this is because uh, Trantor is a city planet that holds tens of billions, like 40 billion people around this planet. And, and, and the way that, that I think of it is just the whole planet is just one big city. So Gail uh, uh, Dornick decides that he wants to go to an observation deck to see more of the planet, although there's really not much to see. However, someone's been following him since he arrived on the planet, and they reveal that to Dornick here. And his name is Gerald, and Gerald knows that Dornick is there to help Selden, but Gerald complains that Selden's always predict, pr- predicting disaster, and, and this is a problem, as we'll see in a minute. So, so Dornick doesn't like the way that Gerald's talking about his idol, and he leaves. He goes back to his room where Harry Selden is waiting for him. Selden explains that Gerald is an agent for the Commission of Public Safety, and in their conversation, we read this. This is what Dornick says about Gerald. He said you predict, Dornick said this about Gerald to Harry Selden. He said you predict disaster. I do? What does Trantor mean to you? Everyone seemed to be asking his opinion of Trantor. Gaul felt incapable of response beyond the bare word glorious you say that without thinking what of psychohistory i haven't thought of applying it to the problem before you are done with me young man you will learn to apply psychohistory to all problems as a matter of course observe selden removed his calculator pad from the pouch at his belt men said he kept one beneath his pillow for use in moments of wakefulness its gray glossy finished was slightly worn by use selden's nimble finger spotted now with age, played along the files and rows of buttons that filled its surface. Red symbols glowed, and out from the upper tier, he said, that represents the condition of the Empire at present. And he waited. Gaul said finally, sure, that is not a complete representation. No, not complete, said Selden. I am glad you do not accept my word blindly. However, this is an approximation which will serve to demonstrate the proposition. Will you accept that? Subject to my later verification of the uh, derivation of the function, yes, Gaul was carefully avoiding a possible trap. Good. Add to this the known probability of imperial assassination, viceroy revolt, the contemporary recurrence of periods of economic depression, the declining rate of planetary explorations, the, he proceeded, as each item was mentioned, new symbols sprang to life, at his touch, and melted into the basic function, which expanded and changed. So he pulls out his calculator to try to tell, to, to try to explain what's going to happen in the future. And then eventually we read this. The procedure was much longer, and at its end, Gaul said humbly, Yes, I see now. Finally, Selden stopped. This is Trantor three centuries from now. How do you interpret that, eh? He put his head to one side and waited. Gaul said unbelievably, Total destruction. But that is impossible. Trantor has never been. Selden was filled with intense excitement of a man whose body had grown old. Come, come. You saw how the result was arrived at. Put it into words. Forget the symbolism for a moment. So Gaul here tries to make a psychohistory prediction and calculates it to 85%. That, that it's, there's an 85% chance that, there's gonna be, that this planet is going to be destroyed. But Selden says it's actually 92.5%. So there is also um, 
Selden says there's also a 1.7% that he will be executed, but of course that's not going to stop his project because he's already taken that into account as, as well, and uh, he, he goes into tries to go into some of those different things that, that he's taken everything into account and that he still knows what is going to happen, that he has predicted, mathematically predicted the future, and I think that's what psychohistory is the way I understand it, mathematical prophecy. So, uh, Selden leaves, and him and Gall are supposed to meet the next morning at the university. So we have some insight here into what psychohistory is. As I said, it is a mathematical prophecy, and at one point, Selden describes it as scientific fact. That is how that he, that he is so sure about things because of psychohistory and mathematics that that he believes that it is scientific fact and he believes that this is such a complicated process to figure that it's out that it's something that's only understood by a few but this of course brings up the question of prophecy what is prophecy and what is the theological significance of prophecy first of all prophecy according to the google machine is simply a prediction prophecy is really more than that but that is probably what's commonly understood when we use the word prophecy. We, a, a prediction, that you are going to say what happens in the future, that you are predicting the future. So to prophesy is to predict the future in the common understanding of that word. And here in Foundation, the prophecies that Selden makes have a percentage attached to them. If everything happens how I think it will, there's going to be a 92.5% chance that this is going to happen. The psychohistory is certainly different than the kind of prophecy that we find in the Bible. It's different than biblical prophecy. Psychohistory is relying on yourself and your own abilities and your own understanding and your own guesses and your own formulas and your own algorithms. That's relying on what you can do and how you can figure that out. Biblical prophecy, however, doesn't rely on you. It is a word from God, not from yourself or your own abilities or your own mathematical formulas, which is why prophecy in the Bible doesn't have an 80% chance of being true or a 96% chance of being true or a 99.9999% being true. It has a 100% chance of being true because the prophecy is from God. It's the given from God to people, so it doesn't come from any person, and it comes from God. And when we think of prophecy in the Bible, we think of the prophecies, at least I do, we think of the prophecies about Jesus. That the Old Testament, the Bible makes predictions about the Messiah, all of which, all of which Jesus fulfills. So how many prophecies does Jesus fulfill from the Old Testament? That's actually a number that's hard to pin down because there are different ways of counting the prophecies made about Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. For example, there are nine different passages that prophesy that Jesus will be an offspring of David and will rule forever, that he's going to be a king in the line of David, that that's where his lineage will come from. We have nine different passages for that. So, are those nine different prophecies? Are they only five different prophecies? Because these, uh, uh, these predictions happen in five different passages. There's nine, five different books of the Bible, book or chapter. So, so we have uh, five different chapters of the Bible that predict this. There's nine passages, because there's some times where it happens in one passage and then says something about you know, Jesus being a, uh, a descendant of David, and then a couple verses later says it again, how, how the Messiah will be a, a descendant of David. So 
do we look at those and we say, well, are those nine predictions or are those nine prophecies because there's nine different verses? Is there only five prophecies because it happens in five different chapters in the Old Testament? Or does this only count as one prophecy fulfilled since they are all prophesying the same thing? So what we've had here is we've had some different biblical scholars that have looked and said, well, they're, they're nine prophecies because I can show you here these nine verses. We've had some that look and say, no, it's only five because here are the five chapters that these are in. And these verses are very close together and they're part of the same passage and part of the same author. So these are only five different ones. But then we've had some other biblical Scholars look and say, I'm only going to count it as one because all nine of these verses, all five of these passages are talking about the same thing. So, so there's some different ways to count how many prophecies Jesus has fulfilled. So that way, if you go to do research, and if your research is typing it into to, to Google, it's probably not the greatest form of research, but if you do go to Google or search the internet for this, you're going to find different articles with different numbers, and this is why. Because not not because people have a different um, are are reading this and saying understanding prophecy and there there may be some of that too. There's some imp- interpretation of prophecy and different things like that. And sometimes people might stretch and disagree with what a prophecy is or or is not, and those kinds of things as well. So so it's really kind of hard to pin down an exact number of how many prophecies. Jesus fulfills about the Messiah from the Old Testament. But but I do know this. Every single prophecy in the Old Testament that is made about the Messiah, Jesus fulfills them all. No matter how many, how you want to count them, how you want to divide them, if you want to count them by verses, by passages, by category, no matter what it is, Jesus has fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. Prophecies that were written at least three to four hundred Years before Jesus was born, he fulfills them all. And not even Harry Seldon could calculate those odds because at the least count, there are are dozens of prophecies that Jesus fulfills about the the Messiah. Dozens. If you want to count the least amount, you're you're, you're going to to be in the double digits of, of prophecies that Jesus fulfills. Dozens of them. And to be able to calculate one person fulfilling all of those things that were written before he was born is impossible. It's incalculable. It cannot happen. Mathematically impossible. And yet, Jesus does it. Because what is impossible for people is possible with God. Jesus fulfills all the prophecies of the Old Testament. All of the prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Now. God giving prophecy to people is also quite different than Selden's psychohistory. One is dependent on the divine. The other is dependent upon yourself and your own ability. So it's quite different there where when God tells you, here's what's going to happen and gives someone that prophecy, you can be certain that that's what's going to happen because God knows it. But Selden needs to try to figure these things out on his own. He's relying on himself, not on God. Back to the book, and Gaul doesn't see doesn't get to meet Selden the next day because Gaul is arrested. And the Commission of Public Safety wants to know what Selden is up to. Hey, what's Selden doing and what is the Selden project? But Gaul legitimately doesn't know. He just got here, he just met Selden, so uh Gaul is also 
uh, is arrested, but Selden is arrested as well and put on trial. And, and Selden is put on trial because uh, he, it's, he, he's been accused of uh, making psychohistory predictions that are disloyal to the Empire. Uh, Selden says, though, that he's just giving the facts. The, the facts can't be loyal or disloyal. Here's what my mathematical calculations have shown. And throughout this trial, I find myself wondering, what if this prediction had never been made and no one ever thought about the un- em- empire falling? Because uh, that's what these predictions are, that the, empire, that the empire is going to fall, that it's going to fade away. What, what if he had never made those predictions? Would it still fall? Or even if he didn't predict this and kind of go public with it, if he didn't do that, would it fall? Would, would that still happen? It kind of reminded me of the vase the Oracle and Neo in the Matrix, you know, where, where where she says, "Don't worry about the vase." He turns around and breaks it. You know, what what's really gonna gonna cook your noodle later is thinking, you know, "Would you have still broken the vase if I hadn't said anything?" If Selna did not predict the fall of the Empire, would the fall still take place? Maybe opens up to some questions here of predestination or free will, but we will save that for a little bit. So Selden has predicted that after the, the, the fall, the empire is going to fall, and then there's going to be a 30,000-year period of Dark Ages. But he believes that his project, the Selden Project, can lower that 30,000 years to only 1,000 years. So he knows that he cannot stop the fall of the empire. He knows this is going to happen, but his mathematics say he can cut 29,000 years off the, the rebuilding of the empire and therefore minimize the effects of the destruction. So, how does he plan to cut 29,000 years off of this dark period of time, though? Well, here are some questions and answers that we read during that trial. Question to Harry Selden. How do you propose to do this? By saving, here's his answer, by saving the knowledge of the race. The sum of human knowing is beyond any one man, any thousand men. With the destruction of our social fabric, science will be broken into a million pieces. Individuals will know much of exceedingly tidy, tiny facets of what there is to know. They will be helpless and useless by themselves. The bits of lore meaningless will not be passed on. They will be lost through the generations, but if we now prepare a giant summary of all knowledge, it will never be lost. Coming generations will build on it and will not have to rediscover it for themselves. One millennium will do the work of 30,000. All this. All my project, all this, the question starts and here and Selden says, all my project, my 30,000 men with their wives and children are devoting themselves to the preparation of an Encyclopedia Galactica. They will not complete it in their lifetimes. I will not even live to see it fairly begun, but the time, but by the time Trantor falls, it will be complete and copies will exist in every major library in the galaxy. So Selden's hope is in knowledge. His hope is in knowledge that 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 there, he he has hope in himself or in the human race. More, he 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 has hope in people and what they can do. And here is what we would call a humanist point of view. We read earlier that that Asimov said that he would be a humanist, and, and humanism is basically placing your hope in people. That society will get better if the right people are in the right position. That society will get better if people know more, if they grow more, if they make good art, if they do what is right. Although what human defines what is right, if humans are all there is and all the hope 
that there is. So basically, humanism states that humans in and of themselves are able to improve society. They are able to improve the world. They are able to save themselves. If salvation is even a language, a, t- a term that humanists would use. The core elements of humanistic thought are education, reason, individualism, a strong belief in the universal human uh, human nature. And uh, atheism is often common among humanists, and, and it's said that that's been a byproduct of, reason, uh, of embracing reason and science, that humanists are people of science, and they're people of knowledge, and they're people of facts, and that people of religion are not those things, which we, of course, know is not true. So humanists, they have a secular approach to morality. Humanists reject supernatural sources of morality because uh, there's some inconsistencies they claim with that, and because it rejects, uh, humanism rejects na- extra natural phenomena in general. So they would look at something and say there is no, there's nothing that is superhuman that, that is done. There is nothing that is supernatural that is done. There's nothing that can be done beyond which we can explain with natural laws and and, and those kinds of things. So, so there's nothing that would go beyond that. So for humanists, the, theism, believing in God, is an, uh, an obstacle to morality rather than a, a precondition for morality. So their morality has changed and continues to change as, as people grow, as society develops, their morals change to fit what is happening within society. So uh, what is right for the humanist right now may not be right for the humanist in a year as people grow and and righteousness changes as as we can grow, and being good can change as we can grow. So there's there's a lot of change and growth that can happen for the humanist as society uh, changes and and grows. Of course, there are several problems with this. If rules for morality change, then there really are no rules for morality at all. So what is morally right for one may not be morally right for another. So how do you ever decide what is right and what is not right? One would argue that this could boil down to making everything permissible or even making nothing permissible. And if nothing's permissible, then everything's permissible. And if like it just it doesn't it doesn't make sense the the way that this goes. And that you can't have something that's a universal morality because there's different cultures and there's different people and there's different views of growing and different things like that. So humanism is putting your hope in humans, which is not a very good place to put your hope. Because I don't know about you, but I know a lot of humans, right? And, and, and they've let me down, and my, myself included. It almost reminds me uh, of The Princess Bride. Again, not a science fiction movie, but still a great movie. One of the best movies ever made. The Princess Bride, when, when Wesley is climbing uh, up the side in an ego, uh, of the cliff, and, and Ego Montoya is waiting at the top, and he, he's impatient, so he wants to throw him a rope to help him get to the top. And Inigo uh, says, you know, I'll, th- I'll throw you the rope and you can climb it. And Wesley doesn't trust him. Rightfully so, right? Wesley's climbing this. They've already cut the rope once. If you've seen the movie, you know. If not, stop this and go watch Princess Bride. It's that good. So they've already cut the rope once. And Wesley's not going to trust him to climb to the top. And, and Inigo Montoya throws, says to him, what if I give you my word as a Spaniard? And Wesley says, no good. I've known too many Spaniards. A pretty funny, funny line in the movie. But I feel like the same way here with humanism. You know, what What about humanism? Isn't that good? No. I've known too many humans. 
I, I can't put my hope. I can't put my faith. I can't put my trust in humans because I've known too many of them. And they let us down and they fail. And our hope, if it's just in other people, is not much of a hope at all. Back to the book. And the next day at the trial, uh, it's not really a trial anymore because the council just wants to know the state of the empire. So they've kind of got beyond the the trial and the punishment stage here. They just want to know the state of the empire and what's going on, according to Harry Selden. So they allow Selden to continue his galactic encyclopedia work on a small planet called Terminus on the edge of the galaxy. And essentially, Selden is exiled to this planet, but is allowed to continue his, the, the, pro, the Selden project, which is on this, uh, the, is making this galactic uh, encyclopedia. And that is what happens in part one of Foundation, and we move to part two, titled The Encyclopedists. Part two picks up 50 years after part one. So 50 years, actually 50 years after the foundation of Terminus. So so it picks up about 50 years later. A man named Louis uh, Pyrene is working on the first volume of the Galactic Encyclopedia. And we also meet another man named Salvor Hardin, who's the, the, the mayor of Terminus. Now, Pyrene is concerned about getting the work of the encyclopedia done, and Hardin is more concerned about political issues with Terminus. So, so the Terminus City Journal wants the, um, to have the opening of the vault, which was a room of unknown purpose left by Harry Selden himself. He left a room here in a vault and said he was going to open in 50 years. And, and, and the city journal wants it to be a time of celebration and time for people to be there and, and to see what's going to happen. But Pyrene and the board, the board that's running uh, the, the project, the, the Selden project is the is foundation. So, so that's what they call it. The, the people who are there on Terminus who are running, making this encyclopedia, that whole, whole thing is called, is called the foundation. So, so uh, Pyrene and the board of the foundation think that it's just their concern that no one should be around to see what's in this vault. But what does um, catch Pyrene's attention is that a representative is being sent to Terminus from a nearby planet, Anacreon. And wh- why we're not really told and what's going to happen. So um, Anselm... Uh, is the representative from an uh, Anacreon, and he comes to Foundation. So they send a representative there. And what he wants to do is he wants to set up a military base on Terminus, and he wants to use the planet to also to be able to give land to the nobility of Anacreon. So he wants to take over planet Terminus, essentially. Uh, and the the board of the Foundation meets, and they decide that they are going to wait for a man named Lord Dorwin, who is the Chancellor of the Empire, to arrive and try to smooth things over uh, with Anselm. And the board also talks about how there is nothing more important than the encyclopedia. That it is, after all, their hope. Their only hope that the future will be better. Again, placing hope in human knowledge and what people can do and and placing it in, in their hope is placing people in their abilities for a better future. But Hardin thinks maybe it's time to have some military defenses just in case things were going to happen. Maybe we can prepare for war 
just in case this doesn't go well and Anacreon on the planet really does want to come and take us over to give to some of their nobles and to establish a military base for strategic purposes here. But the board knows, the board of the foundation knows that it'll take too much time, it'll take too much effort, it'll take too much energy, and it will take too many people away from the only thing that really matters, the encyclopedia. And then one board, remi- one board member reminds everyone that in a month the vault will be open and more instruction from Selden might be there. So he's probably saw this crisis coming because after all, he was a master of psychohistory, knew what was going to happen. So let's just wait and see what will happen when we open the vault. So there is a concern that Anacreon might attack the foundation, but the threat's not really taken seriously uh, by Dorwin when he arrives at foundation. So Dorwin also tells of nuclear power plant accidents on nearby planets and restrictions on nuclear power as well. And Dorwin also tells the Foundation that the Empire is supportive of the Foundation, but Hardin has his doubts. He doesn't really believe Dorwin. He doesn't think that he's being honest. He he has some doubts about him. So Anacreon wants to annex the entire planet of Terminus and establish and uh, establish a military base there, and they let Terminus know that they can take the planet. We can do this if we want, and we can do this by force if necessary, because you guys are just here doing a bunch of research for an encyclopedia, and we're an actual kingdom. We have an actual navy with ships and, you know, spaceship kind of navy, and we have we have a, a war, we have, we have uh, armies, and we can go to war, and we can take you over by force if necessary. And it's also found out that Dorwin was lying, that the Empire has no power or authority over Anacreon to stop their attack, and they really don't care to do this. But the board, they, they need a way to open the vault before they can make any decisions, that, that, that before they do anything worth discussing, discussing, and before there's anything to do that, that that we need to wait and we need to see what is going to happen when we open that vault. One board member, however, does say something that is worth mentioning here and is also worth discussing. It's a quote we see often in this section of the book. Violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. That's a line that Hardin says several times, actually. The line that Hardin becomes known for, violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. I'm not sure exactly how true that is, but I think that I can probably go along with that. And I think it maybe even goes along with just war theory, which we've talked about in other episodes. Uh, if, If someone has been unable or incompetent to get peace, and to work things out in a way that that could be agreeable and with a treaty and with truces and things like that. If someone has been unable to do that, then a just war, if the criteria that we've talked about in other episodes is meant, then then violence could be a last resort and those that have been incompetent to try to get peace. It all depends on the way that what we're looking at here on incompetence. I think that the way this is said is people looking, we're looking at people who are incompetent rulers, People who are who aren't doing their job well, who don't know what to do, that that they that they go to, to refuge. Uh, that, that I'm sorry, that they go to violence as as the last refuge. But I I think it's actually maybe taken a different way than that. Those who are incompetent in the sense that I tried to get peace but I couldn't. It was just not possible to do that. The violence could be 
their last refuge. So I think there's a couple different ways to understand this, because I would think that violence would tend to be more of a first resort for an incompetent ruler, for someone who doesn't know what he's doing, for somebody who, who has bad leadership. Violence would be a first resort for them, not a last refuge. Uh, so, so I think it's talking about even when you're trying to make peace and can't, violence, ha- violence sometimes becomes, or violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. But I could be wrong, and it could be taken the other way as well, that those who are incompetent try to hold on with what they got by using violence because they don't know what else to do. So I don't know. There's a couple different ways you could take that, I think, if that makes sense. I just kind of work that out here. But anyway, um, but, but the foundation puts the encyclopedia before everything, the safety of their planet included. That's how much they believe in their cause. That's how much they believe in this encyclopedia. At one point, one of the board members says, our policy has been but one cardinal principle, and that is the encyclopedia. Whatever we decide to do or not to do will be so decided because it will be the measure required to keep that encyclopedia safe. This is their main concern. Their main purpose for living, the encyclopedia. What they believe will help humanity get past the fall of the empire 29,000 years quicker. That is their purpose. That is their concern. That is their reason for living. But what is yours? What is your purpose? What are, what, what, what is giving you reason for waking up every morning? What is giving you reason to keep going on? What are you passionate about? The purpose that we were made for truly is to love God and to love others, to, to spread the truth of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ as we have a personal relationship with God and share the love that he has for people with other people so that they too can enter into that relationship. That should be part of all of our purpose here, to love God, to love others, to spread that love of Jesus to other people. The love that we receive from him flows into us and out of us into others. We are continuously filled with Jesus' love as it pours into us and then pours into the lives of others. Our purpose is to introduce people to Jesus so they can too can have that saving relationship with him. We have a much greater and much more important purpose than just trying to uh, Trying to put together a book of knowledge, a book of facts that we we have so we have more than a book of just knowledge and facts. But we can actually know the author. We can know the one who inspired the writing of the book, the writing of the Bible, and we can be in personal relationship with Him. And our purpose should be to draw others into relationship with Him as well. So, what is your purpose? The foundation that the foundation is built upon is not a very strong one. It is built on people and their abilities, and that's where we see humanism again. It may work out in a work of science fiction. It seems like it's probably going to, but that doesn't work out very well in real life. Not truly. Looking at other people as your hope, as to what can bring you purpose and meaning and fulfillment, it doesn't truly work out because those things only come truly come from being in a relationship with jesus back to the book and harden and a man we meet in chapter six of section two uh johan lee they're up to something they're in cahoots they're working with each other but it's kind of secretive and we're not exactly sure at this point what is going on 
Then we get to opening the vault, and Selden appears to them. Well, he kind of appears to them. A hologram with a pre-recorded message of Selden appears to them. Selden, of course, has long since died. And Selden then tells his secret. The Encyclopedia Project? It's irrelevant. Selden never cared if it even got done or not. It was just a distraction. It's just a distraction that all these things you've been working for over the last 50 years haven't really mattered because there's been something else greater in mind. So they've been tricked. They've been deceived by Selden. And here is what uh, Hologram Selden says in part. It is a fraud in the sense that neither I nor my colleagues care at all whether a single volume of the encyclopedia is ever published. It has served its purpose. Since by it we extracted an imperial charter from the emperor, by it we attracted a hundred thousand humans necessary for our scheme, and by it we managed to keep them preoccupied while events shaped themselves until it was too late for any of them to draw back. So, of course, here again is when we come to another question about free will or predestination. Do people have free will or are we just predestined to do what we're going to do and it's already been determined for us? So it doesn't matter really what's happening or what we're doing because it's all already been determined and we have no free will, which which is it here. It seems that that Selden here is saying it doesn't matter what you've done or what you haven't done because I've already set you on a trajectory and I know what's going to happen and it's already been set. It's already been destined. What is going to happen? no matter what you do. But continuing, the hologram Selden says, in the 50 years that you have worked in this fraudulent project, there is no use in softening phrases. Your retreat has been cut off, and you have, and you now, and you have now no choice but to proceed on the infinitely more important project that was and is our real plan. To that end, we have placed you on such a planet in such a time that in 50 years you are maneuvered to the point where you no longer have freedom of action. From now on and into the centuries, the path you must take is inevitable. You will be faced with a series of crises, as you are now faced with the first, and in each case your freedom of action will become similarly uh, circumscribed so that you will be forced along and only one path you'll be forced along one and only one path that sounds like predestination to me it doesn't matter what you're going to do you will face these things and then you are going to walk on one path and only one path because this is what's been set up for you to do he continues it is that path for which our psycho history for which our psychology is worked out and for reason for centuries galactic civilization has stagnated and declined Though only a few ever realize that. But now at last, the periphery is breaking away and the political unity of the empire is shattered. Somewhere in the 50 years just past is where the historians of the future will place an arbitrary line and say, this marks the fall of the Galactic Empire. That seems like predestination, quite a bit of that, that, that they are, 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 are being... The, the, what's going to happen has already been determined, although it's not really truly predestination because the choice of one person has set them on the course where they are going. That these events haven't been determined, but they've been mathematically predicted. But even all those mathematical predictions cannot be entirely accurate, cannot 
only have a percentage of being accurate because of free will. We read in part three of chapter, uh, in, in part uh, three, chapter two, that Selden's advanced psychology was limited. It could not handle too many independent variables. Couldn't handle too many independent variables. That is, it could not handle the free will of just one person. So Selden tries to predict the future by guessing what groups of people will do, not by what individuals will do, because just one individual could throw off everything with Selden, because his predictions are based on probabilities and not knowledge, and it's based on what a, a group of people will probably do, not what one individual will do, because that's just too many independent variables to count for, because everyone has free will, and anybody can mess this up so uh, he, he can't calculate what that could be for individuals. He can only calculate what's going to happen and prophesy for the future for groups of people. So, but prophecies given by God are not based on probability. They're based on knowledge. With Selden, his, his predictions are based not on knowledge, but on probability. See the difference there? Selden's basing his predictions on probability, not knowledge. But prophecies given by God are not based on probability. They're based on knowledge because if something happens, no matter when it happens, God knows it because it happens. We would call that God's all-knowing ability, that characteristic to him, that he knows everything, his omniscience, that, that thing, if something happens, God knows it, things because things happen, no matter when they happen. That, that God is not limited by space or time. So when things happen, God knows them. So he could make prophecies off of knowledge, not off of just algorithms or predictions as Selden does. But when um, the, the recording, uh, when that ends of Selden in this section, uh, Pyrene uh, tells Hardin that he's right, that the board will need to give up control. That's what Hardin and Lee have been talking about. That's what they've been in cahoots with each other about, that the, the board of the foundation needs to give up control. And Pyrene, after seeing and hearing from Hologram Selden, believes that he is right. Then we move on to part three, titled The Mayors. And, well, we jump ahead another 30 years into the future. So what has happened in these past 30 years? Here's what we read. How the mighty had fallen. Kingdoms, they were prefects in the old days, all parts of the same province, which in turn had been part of a sector, which in turn had been part of a quadrant, which in turn had been part of the all-embracing galactic empire. And now that the empire had lost control over the further reaches of the galaxy, these little splinter groups of planets became kingdoms with comic opera kings and nobles and petty, meaningless wars and a life that went on pathetically among the ruins. A civilization falling, nuclear power forgotten, science fading to mythology until the foundation had stepped in, the foundation that Harry Selden had established for just that purpose here on Terminus. So we can see it was part of the reason for the foundation, not so much about building and distributing a galactic encyclopedia, but being there to truly help put the pieces back together after the Empire falls, so that uh, the end goal 
it's still the same to cut the the time from thirty thousand years down to one thousand years, and uh, this time of dark ages or the, this time of uh, of destruction after the fall that they can cut that down. That's still the goal, but it, Selden just doesn't think that's going to. I didn't think that was truly going to happen through through the encyclopedia. But now the the foundation is now cut off from the Empire. They don't know what's going on with the Empire. The Empire has no control over them. There's no reporting to them. As far as they know, the Empire has fallen. They don't know anything about it. They, they aren't kept up to track with that, and there's no communication. But in this section, there's a man named uh, Cermak, and he comes to visit Hardin and Lee. Yes, uh, Hardin has taken over the foundation. He's in charge, and Lee's like his right-hand man. And Cermak, he leads a group of people that does not like the way that Hardin has been governing. And we read that when Anacreon split from the Galactic Empire, broke into different kingdoms, and to keep the four kingdoms from attacking the foundation... The Foundation and Hardin had bribed them with weapons and technology and help and information, and what they return, re- received in return was peace, that the Anacreon did not attack them. So that's what they received in return. We, uh, so, but Cermak and his group are afraid that the Foundation is vulnerable to attack, so they want to go and develop some... some uh, so some military power and be able to go and attack first instead of waiting to be attacked. So so that's what Cermak and, and his group are want to do. They want to go attack first instead of waiting to be attacked. But Hardin has the framed statement on his wall. Violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. Violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. And and he doesn't want it to be incompetent. He doesn't want to be able to say that this is my last refuge, that this is the last thing I can do because I don't know what else to do. He doesn't want that because he doesn't view himself as incompetent. And I think that's the way that Hardin understands that saying. But we also find out something interesting here, that a new religion has been started at the foundation. And here's where it's interesting where Asimov says that he tries to avoid religion because he does not try to avoid religion at all. And foundation. So what we see here is the barbarian kingdoms. Uh, so so that, that's just the kingdoms that are not as advanced as uh, and technological advanced as the foundation. So the barbarian kingdoms they uh, they have been given the technology that foundation have, and they believe that technology to be magic. So they can come and they can see different things that can happen. Uh, is such a jump ahead in technology for them that they can't believe it's actually happened naturally and that these things are, are, are magic or these things are somehow something that is supernatural that is happening with the technology that is given to them. So Hardin has made science and technology into a religion where technology is magic or supernatural and the foundation trains priests who then go to these kingdoms with this new technology talking about how it is supernatural and how there's power behind that and how uh, the, that this isn't some kind of natural process that's happened. It's something supernatural, something magic. And there's, so there are priests that go there with technology claiming that it's magic to just have more of a hold over these kingdoms. So religion has been mixed with the foundation, and Harry Selden is their prophet. As a matter of fact, at one point we have an exchange where, uh, in order to understand this exchange, we need to meet a couple of new characters here. I told you there was a lot of them. 
One of these characters is King Leopold I, who's the king at this point of Anacreon, and Venus, Leopold's uncle. So here's what we read when Leopold finds out that Hardin is coming to visit Anacreon. So here's what we read when the king finds out that Hardin's coming to visit him. Leopold says it would be uh, sort of blasphemous, you know, to attack the foundation. I, I mean, he paused. Venus says, go on. Leopold said confusedly, I mean, if there were really a galactic spirit, he, uh, it, it, it mightn't like it. Don't you think? No, I don't, was the hard answer. Wena sat down again and his lip twisted in a strange smile. And so you really bother your head a great deal over the galactic spirit, do you? That's what comes of letting you run wild. You've been listening to Verisov. Verisov is the high priest of Anacreon, but he's also the ambassador of Foundation. That's where he was trained. He's also a friend of Harry. Uh, excuse me. He's also a friend uh, of Hardin. Um, so he says you've been listening to Ver- Verisov quite a bit. I take it. He explained a great deal about the galactic spirit. Uh, Weenus interrupted. Yes, Weena says, why, you unweaned cub, he believes in that mummery a good deal less than I do, and I don't believe in it at all. How many times have you been told that all this talk is nonsense? Well, I know of that, but Verizov says, and again, Weena interrupts, but pay, pay no attention to Verizov. It's nonsense. There was a short rebellious silence, and then Leopold said, Everyone believes it just the same. I mean, all this talk about the prophet Harry Seldon and how he appointed the foundation to carry on his commandments and there might someday be a return of the galactic paradise. And how anyone who disobeys his commandments will be destroyed for eternity. They believe it. I've presided at festivals and I'm sure they do. They believe it. So this has developed into a full-blown religion with harry selden who you have to follow him and his commandments or you will forever be destroyed for eternity they also have what's called here the galactic spirit it seems to be their name for for god is the way that i understand this and here's some more about what we read about the galactic galactic spirit and foundation the galactic spirit to use the popular cant helps those who help themselves So that's what's said about the galactic spirit here. The galactic spirit helps those who help themselves, something that has sometimes been said about God, but never the scriptures don't say that about God. God actually helps those who are helpless. God helps those who cannot help themselves. God helps those who are incapable, who don't have the ability to help themselves. And none of us have the ability to save ourselves. But if we think we need help, God is probably going to be there and help us. If we don't think we need any help, well, don't be surprised if God doesn't show up and help you if you don't think you need to, if you don't think you need his help. So, the galactic spirit it said here in Foundation, a popular phrase that the galactic spirit helps those who help themselves. Maybe you've heard that about God, but it just simply is not true that is not the case. We also read about the galactic spirit that in the name somebody says this at one point In the name of the galactic spirit, remove him from his command, for there is no command where the blessing of the galactic spirit has been withdrawn. The divine king himself may not maintain his kingship without the consent of the spirit. So that's quite a bit of control 
that these priests have. These ability, these people to come here and say that, that I can take away the blessing of the galactic spirit to a king, so he is no longer going to be king. So that's quite a bit of control that is had here within this religion that has been formed. That, that's a lot of power and control to be able to do that and even remove a king from office. We also read, In the name of the galactic spirit and of his prophet Harry Selden and of his interpreters, the holy men of the foundation, I curse this ship. And we'll see what happens when this ship is cursed later on and what happens there. But but in the name of the galactic spirit and his prophet Harry Selden and his interpreters and the holy men of the foundation. So that just tells you a bit of what the people believe about this galactic spirit. And then finally, something else we read here about this. Uh, here, here's a line about the galactic spirit. It says, My lady, I have a theory. It came upon me ready-made as though the galactic spirit had gently laid it in my mind. So some people look at this galactic spirit as though it can give them inspiration. It can, can give them an idea. It can, can give them thoughts that it is like that within their minds that it can inspire them. So we see that here, just some more understanding of who the galactic spirit is in here. So we're, we're given some indication of, of who they understand the galactic spirit to be. I do like the title galactic spirit. I think that's kind of cool. I think that, 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 that sounds cool. And, and also, um, there's a relation here to God because God is spirit. But the God of the Bible is different than the God that Selden has made, or the, the, not so much Selden. I think it's more Harden at this point that Harden has made to advance his own purposes. Selden has has made Harden, excuse me, Harden has made this religion and has made it to advance his own purpose, to to get what he wants, to develop his own plans, to to do. It, it almost seems more cult-like than religion-like. Here's some more of what we read about this religion and what it is. At one point, someone asks Cermak, "What kind of religion is it?" Harden's always said that it was just a fluffy flummery to get them to accept our science without question. This is a response from a man named Bort, who's part of Cermak's group who wants to overthrow Hardin. Bort says, The religion which the Foundation has fostered and encouraged, mind you, is built on strictly authoritarian lines. The priesthood has sole control of the instruments of science we have given Anacreon, but they've learned to handle these tools only empirically. They believe in this religion entirely and in the uh, spiritual value of the power they handle. For instance, two months ago, some fool tampered with the power plant in the Tesquitlan Temple, and one of the large ones. He contaminated the city, of course, but it was considered divine vengeance by everyone, including the priests. So false religion here that's knowingly formed to advance one's own desires. Not very good. Not a religion that you would want to be following. Somebody who's just made this to advance their own desire, to advance their own kingdom. That They've just made something up and have just been passing this off. Even passing things off that they know really what happened. But hey, we're just going to use this situation to our advantage. We're going to call it divine vengeance. And even the priests are going to do that. Everyone's going to. So again, it just looks more cult-like than it does religion-like. In this section also, Venus, who uh, again is uh, related to the king, he is what well, his title we're called is the Prince Regent, and he's planning to attack an overthrow foundation by military force. This 
threat of attack from Anacron is still there. However, one of the ships that Weenus planned to use was refitted by Foundation. He took it to them to fix it. So the Foundation put a kill switch to disable the ship. So Weenus has Harden arrested, but Verizov, aware of what's going on, brings an uprising against Weenus and gets the people to believe attacking the Foundation is blasphemous. You can't do that. This is a holy city. And we have our religion here, and this is what's been formed, and we have all these priests here, so it would be blasphemous to attack that city. And then Verizov curses the ship. That's the curse we read earlier. He curses the ship, and by the kill switch, and there's a, a priest on board, Theo uh, Apparat. The priest on board the ship uh, is there, and when uh, he curses the ship, they hit the kill switch, and it kills the ship. So then the priest also on board says, this is a divine curse that our ship no longer can work. So they go get Prince Lefkin, who's the commander of the ship and Weenus's son, and he is forced to surrender. He is forced to broadcast a message calling for Weenus's arrest and trial by a church cohort. So Weenus demands uh, instead that Hardin be executed. He, he, he tries that. Violence is the last resort of the incompetent. And we see that here with Weenus. And I, I think that that's the meaning for this that I like. So Weenus, uh, he, he demands the execution of Harden because violence is the last resort of the incompetent, but the guards disobey him. And then Weenus tries to shoot Harden, but he has a protective force field around him. Harden does. And so it doesn't work. So then Weenus turns the gun on himself and kills himself. So again, we see here suicide and science fiction again and once more if you are struggling uh, with thoughts of self-harm please call the suicide hotline at 800-273-8255 that's the number in america but no matter what country you're listening this to, to, to this in and thank you to our international listeners there's quite a few of them and i am encouraged by that so thank you for listening if you just type into the google machine of the number for a suicide hotline. It will come up in the country that you are in and someone is there and is willing and wants to talk to you. So I encourage you to do that, please. If you need help, get that help. You are worth it. So what we see here in in the book is that, that Weenus has made a power play, tried to overtake Foundation, but it has backfired on them. And not because of some kind of divine curse, but because of technology. So there it is again, that they have taken this religion and mixed it with what they have, and now people think that they look at this and think, oh, this is really something that God's doing, but it hasn't been anything that God has done because they've put their hope and their trust in themselves, humanism, not in God. That's what they've done. And so we see here this common theme of humanism throughout all of Foundation. So Cermak attempts uh, a coup on Hardin, but that also fails as Hardin has saved the foundation from attack, so he gets to remain in office and, and that attempted overthrow of the foundational board of the foundation board does not work by Sir Mac and those um, around him. So the next section is section four and it is titled The Traitors. And again with this section we have some new characters to meet. By now the foundation has grown and sending out traitors to neighboring planets so that the foundation can have more money and also so they can have more political power. They're trying to get more money through trading, but also trying to establish some new relations with some new planets and some new neighbors. So what we see here is Master Trader Gorov travels to the world of Escone, 
uh, hoping to trade atomic power technology. However, Ascone elders aren't exactly a fan of technology. At one point, we read this. That's right, the Esconian ruler relaxed visibly. I can't endure useless chatter. You cannot threaten and I won't abide flattery. Nor is there room for injured compliments. I have lost count of the times you wanderers have been warned that your devil's machines are not wanted anywhere in a scone. Devil's machines is what he calls this technology that they are offering. That seems a bit harsh. But I wonder how far off it is. Because there is dangers and to technology and technology can come to control you. When we have looked at technology and phones and screens, we have seen so much more anxiety and depression and isolation, especially amongst young people. And the devil wants those things. He wants people to be anxious. He wants people to be depressed and isolated. He wants there to be division and discord and arguments and lack of empathy. Because as we've talked about before, the more time we spend on machines, it seems that the more we become like machines. So I don't think it's too far of a stretch for the Esconian ruler to call these devils machines. Because that's really what a lot of technology has come that we have the world at our fingertips, and it can lead us into some very, very bad, very dark places. And, and I think the devil is very happy about that. And the phones that we have and the distractions that are there and this kind of idea of it, we can just escape reality, even though we really can't through our phones, or all these different kinds of things that we use technology for, and it's really just the devil's machines. I don't think that's too far off. That's the line that stood out to me and one that I thought worth discussing. Also in this section, we see a development of the religion that Hardin started, and at one point we, we read this. It's simple enough, said Gorov. The only way we can increase the security of the foundation here in the periphery, the periphery like the surrounding planets, is to form a religion-controlled commercial empire. We're still too weak to be able to force political control. It's all we can do to hold the four kingdoms. So their religion has developed into being a money-making empire as well. Not only is it there's religion there and they mix with prophecies and all those kinds of things, but now it's also a money-making outfit, which is not the purpose of religion, or at least it shouldn't be. The, pur- the main purpose of religion should not to be to make money and to get rich. If somebody is starting a religion to make money and to get rich, run. Don't follow that religion. That's not a good one to follow. That's not a good reason to start that. But it seems here that that's where Gorov is going. He wants to form a religion-controlled commercial empire. He wants to to mix business and religion so that he can use his religion and that's been established to also be able to get rich and to have more money. So, um, again, just looking at that leans more towards this being a cult than it does being a religion. We're still, le- we're, we're still more on the cult scale than we are on the religion scale. Le- on the, we're, we're more on the cult side of the scale than we are on the religion side of the scale. The, the one is outweighing the other. So the foundation sends trader Lamar Ponyets to negotiate with the Escone elders um, and to also uh, get Gorov's freedom um, because Gorov has been held in captivity because uh, he is there and, and they're, they're holding him. Um, but however, they are willing 
to let Gorov go in exchange for gold. So uh, Gorov's not supposed to be there on the planet. He's not supposed to be making trades. He goes there, tries to do it, gets arrested. But then Foundation sends uh, Ponyets to go um, to go get set Gorov uh, to be able to exchange for his freedom. So the Ascon, uh, they're willing to let Gorov go in exchange for gold. So Ponyets, he's a tricky one. You've got to watch out for him. He makes a transmuter that can turn iron into gold. And there's a counselor, Farrell, who's a member of the council on Ascon who wants more power and advancement. So he buys the transmuter from Ponyet. But Ponyet plants a video recorder inside and he blackmails Farrell with the recording of the transmuter's use because it's technology and it's turning iron into gold. And he's not supposed to have that technology, but he wants to be able to have power so he buys a transmitter so he can turn iron into gold and then can get more wealth and can get more power but he's not supposed to be using technology so now Ponyet has something to blackmail him with so Farrell is able to use this um is able to make sure that Gorov is released quickly and uh part of that deal also is that Ponyet can take all the tin from Farrell's mines that he needs which is very useful since there's very little to no metal on Terminus uh, so it's a pretty good deal for Ponyat. He he is a tricky one. So Farrell is very much interested in the Foundation's good and technology, and he is ready and willing to deal. Ready and willing to do that. So so there's some trade that is advancing here uh, because of Farrell. So Gorov thinks that the Ponyat uh, has a lack of morality in how he does business and how he conducts himself. That he's not a very moral person. That he's in here. That he's tricking people. That he's doing things to try to get. In, Get whatever he needs to do, even if it's going behind somebody's back. And uh, in response to this, Ponyet replies by reminding Gorov of, of an alleged statement made by Salvor Hardin. And here's the statement. Never let your sense of morals prevent you from doing what is right. That just doesn't make sense to me. Never let your sense of morals prevent you from doing what is right. And that, my friends, is a problem with humanist morality because sometimes they because they don't know what's right they don't know what's up or what's down they 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 have no idea because their morals are consistently and constantly changing as as they say society evolves and as people grow so their morals change so so they don't know what their sense of morals are so maybe they have a sense that something shouldn't be done but society may say something different so don't let that sense of morals prevent you from doing what is right. I just don't understand it. But I think, it, again, it is something that certainly shows the humanistic mindset that Isaac Asimov have not, has not only in this work, but also had in his own personal life as well. Next, we move on to Section 5, The Merchant Princes, the last, the last section of the book. And, of course... Since we are in a new section, we have new characters, and we are some 20 years later from the events of the previous section, and the Foundation has become even more powerful, and they've subjugated the four kingdoms under their rule. And here are some new characters, main characters that are introduced. Uh, Haber Mallow, who is a master trader of the Foundation. Jorane Sutt, who's the secretary to the mayor of Foundation, and... Um, Plubis Manillo, who is the foreign secretary of the foundation. So what happens is that three foundation vessels have vanished near the planets uh, of the Republic of Coral. 
and Coral is suspected of either independent technology development or maybe buying some smuggled Foundation goods. So they they don't like that um, that idea that they would be buying something that had been smuggled into them, buying from another source other than them. So Master Trader Habermalo is assigned to go to Coral to investigate their technological developments. What kind of technology do they really have? But he's also sent there to locate the missing ships. So Sut and Manilo had assigned this mission to Mallow and sent along with him a man named James Twer. Uh, so um, when they arrive at Coral, there is a Foundation missionary who seeks refuge on Mallow's ship. But Mallow uh, hands this supposed missionary over to Aspo, Asper Argo, the leader of Coral, because it's illegal to be a Foundation missionary and come to Coral. They don't allow it. They're they're not going to allow that. The penalty for being a missionary, a foundation missionary on Coral, is death. So there is still this religion that they have out here. And if you are coming and trying to promote your traitor religion, because that's what it's developed into this point, if you're trying to promote your traitor religion here on Coral, you're going to be put to death. So so there's a, the, this missionary that comes there, but but Mello says, no, you're not going to stay on my ship because it's illegal to be here and you're here. So I'm going to respect the rules here that is on Coral. And he lets the man go into the, uh, he, he gives them over to Asper Argo. But it was all just a test that Mello passed. The, the, that man wasn't a real missionary. They were just seeing uh, what uh, Mello would do and if he would respect the laws of that land or not and he decides to do that he passes the test even though he's not 100 percent sure it's a test and could have sent someone to death essentially by giving them over just for being a missionary of the organization the foundation that he is a part of but he took a chance and passed the test now through a series of events that we're not going to get into here again you can read the story and there are a lot more details that go along with this but Mallow comes to the point where he believes that religion has gotten the foundation as far as it can go. And to have further conquest, conquests, they need to change their focus to commercial gain. So at one point, here's what Mallow says to Asper. No, I'm a master trader. Money is my religion. And all this mysticism and hocus pocus of the missionaries annoy me. And I'm glad you refuse uh, to countenance it. It makes you more my type of man. I'm a master trader. Money is my religion. And that's really what's happening with religion at this point. So it's gone from a religion to a trader religion. And now they're just focused on trading, at least Mallow is, just focused on trading and leaving some of that religion behind because they think that religion has gotten them as far as they could go. And if you remember back to the Left Hand of Darkness episode, the, the first one that we discussed there, one of the things that Ursula K. Le Guin said in her preface, her introduction to that book, is that science fiction is more uh, descriptive than it is predictive. And I think that's part of what Asimov is doing here, that he is making uh, a description he, uh, of society and what has happened, and that religion has only taken us, has taken us as far as it can, so now we just need to leave it behind and rely on humans and people to get us the rest of the way, get us to wherever it is that we need to go. I, th I think that he is, he's not making a prediction of what has happened. He's making a description of what has happened, or at least what he understands to be happening, and that religion has taken us as far as we can go, so we don't need it anymore. That's what is happening here. And I think that that is the point uh, that, that Asimov believes in, in the description 
that he is making of what society either has done in part or what society should do in part. So the uh, the commander, here's what we, read, what we read here. Um, the commander is happy with what Malo has said, that, that his religion is money and that... Uh, the, that this mysticism and hocus pocus of the the missionaries annoy him, and he's glad that they're not allowed on the planet. So, so him, uh, so so Mallow and uh, the the leader of Coral, uh, Asper Argo, they they get along. Uh, they're kind of on the same page. However, here Mallow saying that money is my religion. What a bad religion to have. What a poor religion. If anything, here in 2022 America, if your hope is in money, oh man, dude, you have no hope. If your hope is in money, you have no hope. With inflation and, and things are, prices on the rise, and are you going to have enough to retire? Are you going to have enough to do this? Because everything's going up, and even though prices are going up, the stock market's going down. All these different things, right, that, that we have here, that if your hope, that if your religion is money, you have a religion that is built on a very poor foundation because money makes for no kind of religion at all. And that is especially, that's true for everyone, especially true for the Christian. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no one, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. Money is a bad religion to have. And you, as a Christian, you cannot serve God and you cannot serve money. It can't be done. But I love this passage as well from 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take, a, take hold of the life that is truly life. Oh, that's so good. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be here, and don't put, their, your, don't put your hope in wealth because it's uncertain. Instead, instead, lay up a firm foundation for the coming age. Lay up a firm foundation. Do good. Follow Jesus. Be following what he has told you to do and be treating others with kindness and dignity and love and respect to, to be doing those things. Do good. Be rich in good deeds. Be generous. Be willing to share. Give to others. Instead of setting up your foundation on wealth, which is a very poor foundation and a foundation that is so uncertain that if your hope is in money, you have no hope at all. Back to the book, and Malo sees this as advancement as the advancement of the foundation coming. Uh, so, so this is the foundation, the the advancement that he wants. Go moving out of a religion trader kind of a deal, just to being traders and just being more interested in money than in the religion. So that's how, how it's interesting how the foundation of the foundation continues to change, which again is a very humanistic idea. So Mallow from uh, this trip and, uh, and interacting with Coral and what he's done, he, he's made a lot of money, like a lot of money from this trip, like Elon Musk kind of money, I think, right? Like, like somebody like, like, soup, like more money than he knows what to do with, enough money to buy Twitter kind of money, right? 
So, but even still, uh, when Mallow gets returns to Foundation, he is put on trial for killing um, or or sentencing to death a Foundation missionary because he turned this Foundation missionary back over to Coral. So at least that's what they think. So that's what they accuse him of. But however, Mallow shows a video proving that it was just a secret policeman for Coral and that nobody really died and it was just a, a, a test that he was able to pass. So he is acquitted. And he goes on to become the mayor of Foundation, which is the start of the Foundation becoming a plutocracy. So that's a political system that is ruled by those with great wealth. So he's turning the Foundation into traders, and he's turning the Foundation into merchant princes as he places his hope in wealth and leaves uh, religion behind to seek after what what his religion is, money. And the book just kind of ends. But remember, this is only part one of a three-part book that is very interconnected. And event, well, it's, it's more than just three parts eventually. Eventually, Asimov does write more in the Foundation series. But to start with, it's just divided into three books. And we've only looked at the first book so far. So, so we've only looked at the first one, which is just kind of why it ends, because that's not actually really the end of the story. There's those short stories that were combined into books and then divided that in, into three different books from that. And that's why we have this that just kind of, well, ends. And that does it for Foundation by Isaac Asimov, where we have discussed the BCAD or BCECE timeline, prophecy, humanism, the galactic spirit of Foundation, technology, and the uncertainty of wealth, as well as a few more topics. So, Someday, I hope to look at the other books in the Foundation series. I, I'm not planning on doing that right now, because this book just kind of ends. So so hopefully, maybe we can get on to those uh, at some point where we can look at the, the later ones, uh, Foundation and Empire, I believe, and then Second Foundation. So hopefully, maybe someday, we will get to those. But what did you like about Foundation? Um, did, did I miss something? What are your thoughts? What stood out to you? I'd love to hear from you and i truly appreciate that you have decided to join me today you can find me on instagram and twitter at theology and sci-fi all one word and we spell sci-fi the correct way around here s-c-i-f-i or you can go to facebook and like theology and sci-fi the podcast or you can email me at theology and sci-fi again all one one word theology and sci-fi at gmail.com i would love to hear from you and again, just a quick reminder of where we're going from here. Season one's coming to an end. As I, I explained in the last episode, we're going to be looking at six movies and six books here in, in season one. So we have one movie to go and one book to go. And I'm super excited about looking at them with you. So the next episode, we'll focus on Metropolis, the 1927 movie, the first full-length sci-fi film is what's considered by many people. So we'll be looking at Metropolis. And then the episode after that, we'll be looking at Frankenstein by, by Mary Shelley, the what's often considered to be the first sci-fi book. So, And then for season two, as I said before, we're going to change things up. I'm going to make an announcement soon on what we're going to be doing for, for that. So, so watch out for that. And I'll let you know more about that in the coming weeks of what is coming with season two. And I look forward to that. And I would love to hear what you think about Foundation. I like Foundation. I don't like where it ends, but I understand it's not really a book that is a standalone book. It's a book that's part of a series and is dependent not just upon 
the story be told in one book, but to, to be able to read all of the books to get the full story of all of Foundation. But I did enjoy this book, and Asimov truly is a master of science fiction, so it is always fun to pick up one of his books and to be able to read through it. Uh, truly um, enjoyable. For the books that I've done with Asimov, I haven't read all of his 500 supposed books, but for the ones I have read, I do enjoy reading them. So uh, thank you for listening today. I truly appreciate it, and I would love to hear from you, and I would greatly appreciate it if you would share this podcast with a friend, get someone to listen to it. And again, I'm going to encourage you, as you are watching movies or as you are reading books, look for theological themes and ideas that you can relate to who God is, and then bring those up with your friends. We all talk to our friends about books we've been reading or about movies we've been watching, and take the opportunity to talk about movies or TV shows or books or whatever it is that you've been reading as a way to to tell them about who Jesus is. I think science fiction is a great vehicle to do that, and I encourage you to be able to use that to open those doors to share with others who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Thank you for listening today. I truly appreciate it. For Theology and Sci-Fi, I am Derek V. Trout. Harden groaned in spirit. The board seemed to suffer violently from Encyclopedia on the Brain. <laughs>